Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Lord, we just ask that uh, this morning uh, that your word would be clear. I pray that you would settle our hearts, settle our minds, help us to be attentive, um, not only um, in the room, but uh, especially to your spirit. Pray that we would have right application to know what to do and, uh, and how to glorify you the most with our life. And we thank you for the hope that we have found in Jesus. And I pray that, that we would learn that our hope isn't only in the future. Our hope is today. And we give you praise and glory for Jesus in his name. Amen. So Paul actually, uh, with two chapters left, of course he didn't write with two chapters. Paul is a typical Baptist preacher. Halfway through the letter, he says, finally. So I just want you to know that uh, when you're halfway through a sermon and you hear uh, in, you know, in closing, that's not new, right? I mean, even Paul did this. So there's two chapters left, and he begins the end uh, with, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So this was received from them initially when he was established in the church and then had to leave just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So what Paul is saying is, based upon what he has just said, which we'll, we'll touch on that a, a little bit, uh, what he has just finished in chapter 3, he is saying to them, I love you, and I've devoted myself to you, and I want to be there to share some things with you face to face, and I am proud of you, and I want you to keep it up. What you're doing is great. Just make sure that you continue to develop and keep doing this more and more. He just has said in chapter 3 of verse 10 that he wanted to say some things to them face to face because there were some things lacking in their faith. And so the last two chapters of the First Thessalonians, Paul is going to kind of give some really high parts, some, some, some lofty things, some really great ending advice, I think, pertaining to those things which were lacking in their faith. And so uh, we're going to begin reading in, uh, in verse 3 in just a moment. So I say that just to simply set the context for why Paul seems to be so kind of all over the place in these last two in these last two chapters there are some things he wants to give them but for now I'm going to tide you over Uh, let me so let me give you some things uh, here verse three we're going to begin for this is the will of God your sanctification remember the sanctification there's there's three things that are at work our body our our soul and our spirit our spirits are already justified in salvation. Our bodies will be glorified in salvation. We will become like Jesus. And while we wait, that, that day-to-day salvation is called sanctification. It's the process of, of beginning to have the transformed mind of Jesus Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also Christ Jesus. This is the sanctification process, the ongoing uh, Christian experience of becoming more and more like Jesus. So he says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, That, so here's part of what that sanctification process looks like to the church at Thessalonica and to us, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each one of you know how to control his own body. It's interesting that the sanctification is of the mind, but how that is lived out is if you are sanctified in your mind, it's lived out through your, through your body. In holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the first thing that Paul wants to draw out for them, this high spot that he is going to elaborate much later uh, with them on face to face is the issue of morality. Now this world stays in a state of excess. So Paul is referring to this excessive. It's not just sex. Sex isn't bad, but sex in, in a way that God did not prescribe is. It's, it's immorality. And it's this desire to always have more. And it's an authority issue. It's a, it's a pride issue. It is a selfish, selfishness issue. And it comes from a lack of contentment. Now, we, by our nature, already battle selfishness. And especially when we, we choose not to follow after God, we become very entitled people. By nature, we become entitled and, and because there's no one to think. And so we are entitled, which leads us to being ungrateful because we deserve everything that we get, right? At least that's the way we begin to think. Listen to how Paul deals with this to the church at Rome in Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's by the way they're living that they are suppressing the truth, keeping it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So for people who would say, well, we don't really know who God is. Well, because you're not paying attention to the things that can be seen, namely even creation. One day people are going to stand before God and they're actually going to try the excuse of, well, I didn't know you. And he's going to say, really, look around at everything you've ever experienced. You were suppressing the truth by the way you were living immorally. You weren't paying attention. You weren't trying to know anything. And here Paul says they are without excuse. Listen to verse 21. For although they knew God... Because God created eternity in our hearts. Nobody's ever going to get away with saying, well, I didn't know who God was. Because you were created with that knowledge. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Look at this. What's the next thing? Or give thanks to him. Because they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Well, this is the essence of entitlement, claiming to be wise, claiming to have arrived, but fools. Futile minds, futile hearts. Matao is the word futile in English from the Greek, and it means empty. It means to be in vain. 
It means to have no, no measure, no ability to, to process. So you think about those who think they know better, those who are entitled, those who have arrived, empty hearts, meaningless thoughts. So when we cease to recognize God's word, we don't recognize him, which leads us to be debased, futile, ungrateful, entitled, and, as Paul says, excessive. And one of the ways that this excessive process works out in our physicality is immorality. This desire for more, the desire for the forbidden, for the desire of the unrestrained. So remember, these are new believers, but they're still fighting old fights. They are, they are saved, but they're still wrestling with who they used to be. They were, and, and their culture was saturated with it. They were doing well with the new things. Remember, they are ministering well. They are leading people to Christ, but they still have some things in their life that Paul wants to bring their attention. So it's mentioned here in verses 3 and 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, immorality, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification. That word fornication is a very generalized term that refers to, and, I, and it's very important because a lot of times, you know, people who, who don't like the authority of God in their life will try to take truth and make it so generalized or so specific that they can worm their way out of their selfishness. But this word is so generalized. It refers to every form of sexual sin that is not how God expects a man and a woman in marriage uh, to behave. It includes throughout Scripture. In fact, the word is pornos if that helps you understand how generalized the word is. It includes pornography. It includes premarital sex of all kinds. It includes prostitution. It includes adultery. It includes incest. It includes homosexual relationships. And we could go into a lot, but we're talking about hope. So I don't want to spend a whole lot talking about all of the meanings of this word. But the sad thing is, is that sexual sins are not only found among non-believers but also among Christians. And yes, you can do a lot of things right, but at the end of the day, Paul says that your sanctification is the will of God, and one of the ways to test if you're becoming more like him is look at your morality, what you're looking at, how you're behaving, what you crave, what you desire. It's a significant way to know if you're becoming more like Jesus. So let's be forewarned that the Lord takes a very, I don't really care what culture says about it. I don't care what mainstream media says about it. I don't know what popular TV shows or channels say about it. God takes a very serious view of sexual sin. And all through scripture, it displeases him. And in fact, it brings down his wrath. Ephesians chapter five, verses five and six says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, that's the word pornos, or impure. And that word actually means mentally, not just physically. Or who is covetous, that is an idolater, Paul says, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Could it be more clear what God's view on immorality is and and becoming the mind of Christ? You cannot become an impure mind and the mind of Christ at the same time. The idea that, that it is safe to look at it as long as it's in the eyes and I don't act it out. It's a lie. Those are empty words. Paul, a single Christian man, says that what's in the mind matters too. Impurity of the mind matters as much as the impurity of the body. Look at verse 5. He actually says, passion of lust That word means the craving or the longing or the desiring of the mind of the forbidden. So whenever temptations come, let us remember the words of verse 7. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but into holiness. The question is not how far is too far. The question is how holy can I possibly be? Could I be more holy? I think an immature Christian who is not producing the mind of Christ would say, what can I get away with? And what Paul says is that the will of God is the sanctification of your bodies and your mind and your spirit. And if that is the case, becoming more and more like Jesus, the Christian should say to themselves, how could I become more like Jesus? Not what can I get away with? We want to live however we want to live sexually and wonder why we don't have hope. If you allow sin into your life, it's because you first allowed it into your mind. But I'm telling you, if you've allowed it into your mind, it's already been in your heart. That's why we have to guard our hearts, because out of it comes the issues of life. There's a story that Jesus tells. I tell it pretty often, too, because it's, it, to me, it's a, it's a primary uh, illustration of the man who, again, it's a parable illustration of a man who, who has a demon in his home and he kicks the demon out and, and sweeps the house out and the demon goes out and gets seven others and come in and, and Jesus says that the man's latter is worse than his former. I mean, kind of the moral of the story is it's better to have one demon than seven. I mean, I think we could all agree it's better to have one demon than seven. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is once you get rid of something, you have to replace it with something. This man still had an empty home ready to be influenced. This is why it's so important to have the mind of Christ, not a futile mind, an empty one, because an empty one will be filled with whatever you surround yourself with. Whatever you're looking at, whatever you're listening to, whatever your relationships are, that's what's going to fill your mind. And the will of God is your sanctification, which is the renewing of your mind to be more like Jesus. So if you're not going to be around Jesus, you're not going to experience sanctification. And this is the will of God. And you wonder why we don't have hope. Well, verse 8 reminds us that sexual sin isn't simply a sin because it hurts someone or that it's not a sin at all. Listen, and I hear a lot of things. It's not a sin as long as it's consensual. Well, you're simply disregarding, you're not simply disregarding men making it a sin. You're disregarding the Spirit of God. Listen, sin matters. And sin in your life will always affect the hope that you can gain from a relationship with Jesus Christ. It will separate you from Him. 
So if we want to have a living hope, we have to be pure. In fact, Paul tells the church at Corinth that every other sin is a sin that happens outside the body. But sexual sin actually is a sin against the body itself. There's a difference with this kind of sin. It, it affects us differently. You know, it's, it's one thing if you, know, if, if you say, hey, can I take your shovel? And I say, sure, here's my shovel. Well, that's not stealing it. You, you're, you're, I'm giving it to you, right? And so you say, well, there's no crime there. But if you steal my shovel, that's a whole nother matter. Okay, well, let's look about that with sexual immorality. You know, as we say, as long as someone gives it away, then it's no, who, who cares? No big deal. But what the Bible says is that God cares. God, you are His. You don't belong to yourself. You don't get to give yourself away in ways that God has not said you get to give yourself away. It's not your shovel. It's His. And when He says, here's what that looks like, here's what it looks like. We don't get to make up our own rules. We don't get to establish what a sin is. God has spoken. All right, let's move on to verse 9. He moves on to the second real quick tidbit that he wants to leave them with to think about. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Great job, church. We taught you when we were there what it looks like to love, and you are doing it. The word here is brotherly love. It's the word Philadelphia, as you probably know by now. This word is often used to describe a mutual respect and appreciation of each other, to be able to serve each other in, uh, in, loving, in loving ways. It's the kind of love that the ancient world would use toward a parent and a child or love that siblings would have for one another. Yeah, you may not get along all the time, but at the end of the day, I love you because you're my brother, right? I mean, you might punch somebody in the nose, but you still love them. In fact, that's probably why you're so angry. I'm just kidding. Don't punch each other in the nose, right? But this verse is saying that the love that Christians should have toward one another in the body of Christ is familial love. This is the way God teaches us to behave toward one another. In fact, we're called brothers and sisters at least 230 times in the Bible, and it literally means those who come from the same womb. And I think it's interesting. I think it's important for us to remember why we are called brothers and sisters is because we come from the same womb. We come from the Holy Spirit himself. We have been born again by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to see each other through that view, through that angle. This implies that we are vitally related to each other through a, a commonality. And when that commonality is lost, it's really easy then to, to treat each other like the world treats each other. So Paul is stating the issue to reinforce it. But when we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, He's teaching us to love one another. We don't need teaching. I mean, I'm telling you, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't have to be taught to love because God is love. So when you have the Holy Spirit... It's kind of intuitive that we should love one another. In fact, we feel guilty when we don't. So it's important. So some issues are not so black and white and they need teaching, but not love. So love. Paul says that he had heard that they were serving Philippi. Actually, he says the churches of Macedonia, but specifically this was the churches of Philippi and Berea. And they weren't told to do that. They weren't... They weren't uh, uh, commanded to serve these churches. They were doing it on their own. And he's telling them, keep that up. God alone is teaching you. Now, 
this is, uh, this is much different than what sometimes we express as love when we say just lip service things about love. So what, is, what does love look like when it's, again, it would be really easy for the church at Thessalonica to say, well, we're going to pray for our brothers up north. We're going to pray for these. We're going to, we care about them. We, you know, it's a whole other thing to send missionaries up there to see what do they need. How can we help you? How can we serve you? How can we love you practically? And that's what they're doing. And Paul finds out about it. They're not tooting their own horn. They're just loving the brothers and the sisters. So verse 10, he says, this thing that you're already getting right, do that more and more. Because relationships are the goal. And, and when you love, I want you, I want you man, I want, I want us to get this because it's becoming less and less everywhere else you look. And I don't want it to be true here. That when we are able to focus on relationships, we really learn to love each other unconditionally. And then we're able to speak into each other's lives. We're able to encourage each other and the encouragement matter. You know, when you, when you gain encouragement from someone you don't know, yeah, it seems, I mean, it's saying the right thing. But when somebody that you know loves you unconditionally, encourages you, it's, it's a whole nother level. Relationships matter. When you get comforted by someone that you know cares, it matters at a whole nother level. And so this is what I would say. Relationships really matter. So when you invest in each other's lives, and we are all going to need encouragement and comfort from time to time, this is why it is so important not to wait until that moment of desperation, we need to live in relationships so that when we, 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 that we have the authority to give comfort and encouragement and also to receive comfort and encouragement. Okay, next. This one's a little tougher, verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, I always, every, I mean, I've memorized this uh, over the years. I always want to say, and work with your own hands. And I, I don't know how you'd ever work with somebody else's, but I don't know why I always want to put that there. To work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think what Paul is teaching here is uh, an ability to be self-sufficient. So, I mean, he just told them that they needed to be mutual but you also don't need to be one that's needy all the time. So live quietly. Quit trying to stir up stuff. Quit trying to stir up stuff. Just mind your own business. Just, just if, you, if we worried about our sanctification, we wouldn't have time to be worried about everybody else's. Keep short lists. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Make your own living. Be dependent on no one. In fact, the second epistle of Thessalonians, Paul wrote this in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 10 of that one. He's, he's writing about these uh, entitled lazy loafers. He says, if any would not work, neither should he, come on, eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's that simple. It's not the church's job to keep people. I don't know where this mentality came from. It ain't the church's job to keep people. It's the church's job to help people. And everybody needs help from time to time. Well, not everybody. Some people need help from time to time. There's no problem with that. The problem is when you live in this depleted way and you become a burden 
to the church. Paul says, no, you know, if you're not going to eat, and obviously there are illnesses and there are disabilities and all of those sorts of things should be taken into consideration. But we shouldn't enable people to live in need, but we shouldn't expect people to carry us either. So, look at this. He says, be moral, be loving, and be independent or mature. Now, these are major distractions to our life because he has just told us about what God's will is for us. But I want you to look at the primary distractions in each of the areas of our life that are growing to become like Christ. In our bodies, be pure. In your minds, you need to make sure that you are independent, self-sufficient, on the, on, and dependent upon the Lord. And in your spirits, be loving. Make sure that you're emitting the love that you are learning from God himself. So he's talking about, I think, probably the, the, the three most things, things, issues in each relationship that we are to ourselves, our bodies, our minds, and our spirits. Now, moving on, apparently there was this huge question that Paul really meant to get to pertaining to the afterlife. There seemingly, apparently, a teaching that was becoming that Jesus was coming back for Christians, and if you died before he returned, uh, then you were just going to miss it. Uh, and that's, you know, they, they did believe in an imminent return of Jesus. He's coming back any time, but... Uh, Boy, for, for all of your, 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 the Christians that are dying uh, and are buried, they're, they're going to they're gonna miss it. And so this wasn't misinformation, but Paul didn't have time to teach it all the way because he says, don't want you to be uninformed. He didn't say misinformed or miscommunicated. But look at verse 13. But I don't want you to be uninformed. That, that word could also be translated, as some of your translations would say, ignorant brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, there's a lot of teaching that comes out of this that like Paul is saying that Christians don't truly die all the way. They just kind of fall asleep. That's, that's not true even a little bit. All right? it's not what, that, that does a lot of damage to the resurrection. Right? So don't, we don't believe in soul sleep. We don't believe in this kind of a putting away of, of, well, they didn't fully experience death. This is Paul's kind way to grieving people instead of saying dead. He says passed away. Right? It's a very kind way of expressing uh, tact. It's the word koimao, which means to be put to sleep. To be, uh, it comes from a, a, another, this word comes from a word that's kaimai, which means to be, to be uh, like a baby would be laid down, uh, but not necessarily, uh, it would be against its, its will, uh, sort of. So, uh, you know, to lie like you're buried is what the word actually means. So Paul's not trying to teach some other thing about death. This person is really dead, and he's, he's using proper figures of speech to refer to, to the buried. He says that you not grieve as, as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So this implies that when Jesus comes, he does return, he is going to bring the righteous dead with him. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. 
And with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So this this misunderstanding that you would miss the resurrection actually was a missing of the teaching of the resurrection entirely. And so Paul wanted to make sure that they could remember that the resurrection is where our hope lies. It's not living a long life. The hope comes from the resurrection. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Make sure you tell each other often these words. So Paul had heard probably from Timothy who had just gotten back there that these Christians were grieving the dead just like the world grieved the dead because they were going to miss heaven. They believed that their loved ones had missed the return of Jesus and their hope was in the return of Jesus, but they they were not living in the resurrection of Jesus. They weren't living with the expectation of the resurrection. And listen, Paul, Paul is going to say in other places that if, it's not, if, if there's no resurrection, then we just need to throw a party because tomorrow doesn't matter. Tomorrow makes no sense. But this is not... The second coming of Jesus is not where we gain hope. The second coming of Jesus is, is proving that hope is beyond it. The, the, the hope that we have doesn't come from the second coming. The hope comes from the resurrection of Jesus that empowers his second coming. Not just life for those who are alive, but resurrection life for everyone who believes in Jesus. Hope comes from the resurrection. So when you live with the resurrection in mind, you can live with hope even in the face of death. So no matter what happens in your life, you, you know, if you get a terminal diagnosis or if you have some terrible thing, tragedy that happens in your life or the life of a loved one, that doesn't get to rob your hope because that does nothing to the resurrection. In fact, it empowers the resurrection in your life. Death can't rob you of hope unless you're not trusting in the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection gives birth to your resurrection. And because he resurrected, that's the hope that we will have our own resurrection. But here's the beautiful thing about it. While we're waiting, he sends us the Holy Spirit so that our spirits are made alive in him. We're actually already living resurrected lives. Do we not understand that we are already walking in the kingdom of God? We are already living in the power of the resurrection. I mean, when when our physical bodies die, that actually is a great relief to be able to fully experience the resurrection like Jesus did. And when we live with that in mind, boy, that should fill us with hope. The problem is there's so many distractions in our bodies, in our mind, in our spirits that rob us from being able to live in that hope. But that's, that's the real hope. So regardless of what your circumstances are, not just eternity. I mean, if you're, if you're living, waiting for your death so that you can go to heaven, listen, 
Okay, that's great. That's good news. I'm not going to diminish that's good news. Heaven is good news, whatever that means. But you're being robbed of daily hope right now. That whatever the circumstance is in your life, there's resurrection. There's, there's nothing, nothing that can rob the resurrection from Jesus Christ. And he's already given that to us through his spirit. That's the guarantee, the proof, the, the seal. What could man do to us that would rob us of our hope? Unless our hope is in something else. And that's the problem. is because our hope tends to be in the changing of our circumstances. It doesn't, it doesn't lie in the, I think of uh, Daniel chapter 3. I think of King Nebuchadnezzar and all of the culture saying you should bow before this golden statue. And I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, we're not going to bow in front of it. And they end up getting in trouble and they have to go stand. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. Isn't that powerful? Even if he doesn't. You said, wow, that's pretty hopeless situation. Not if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they had something else that was carrying through this circumstance. Something much loftier than fire carrying them through the circumstance. They get thrown into the fiery furnace, as you know, and what does it produce? What does their hope produce? The presence of the fourth man in the fire. Now, what, I mean, I don't, whatever your storm may be, whatever your fire may be, whatever it is that's, that's, that's tempting you to give up hope, I'm telling you, it's, it's robbing you from the presence of Jesus in your life. Our hope has got to be bigger than our circumstance. Hope has got to be bigger than your news media or your social media feed. Your, your hope has got to be bigger than the diagnosis. Your hope has got to be bigger than the issue that you're facing. Your hope has got to see Jesus high and lifted up and draw us into himself. And when that is your hope, come what may, even if I will not bow. I kind of, I don't know why, I'm sure this wasn't on the flannel graph when I learned this story, but I'm, I just I sense these three boys with little smirks on their face. Like, even if he doesn't, you know, there's not really an option here. So in the face of death, in the face of hardship, in the face of difficulty, encourage people in the resurrection. That's what, that's what Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica here. Encourage each other with these words. Remind each other when you go through things, because now that you are becoming friends, now that you're becoming brothers, now that you're loving each other unconditionally, you're going to start knowing some of the things that's going on in people's lives. And when you do, you need, to, you need to comfort each other with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need to help them look over their circumstance and be able to see Jesus in the circumstance. That's what fellowship actually looks like in the early church. That's what it should look like now. Not just being friends with one another, not just uh, enjoying the same meal as one another. It's being able to know what's going on in someone's life and showing them the resurrection of Jesus in it. I crave to be that church that's that's a place for people to come and be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have an opportunity as Christians to hear, we, I should say, we have the opportunity as Christians to often hear 
uh, a lot about people's worst moments, worst days, worst issues. People tend to trust. Let me tell you something as a Christian. Let me just encourage you as a counselor, as you're counseling people. Don't encourage people in their circumstance because you have no idea what God's going to do. You don't know. You can't say, well, you know, God's going to, you don't know what God's going to do. But you can point people to the resurrection. You can point people to the resurrection. You can't say, well, you know, God is going to, or, or just keep having faith. or Just, just point people to the resurrection because that's where hope lasts anyway. It makes counseling a whole lot easier. You don't have to be a fortune teller. Don't focus on the changing circumstances. Comfort each other with the reminder of the resurrection power. All right. So Jesus is coming back. Chapter 5, we're going to go continue on, and we're almost finished. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, this is of Jesus' second coming. You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are, are doing. I have no doubt that when Paul was there, he got started by telling them Jesus is returning. You don't remember, he, he had to leave through the middle of the night some way or another quickly. But Matthew chapter 24, verses 36, and then again in verse 42, Jesus himself taught that no man knows the hour of the coming except the Father himself. And so now Paul is reminding them again to watch. You know, it's so easy to drop your guard watching. I remember being a little kid, and I was taught early that Jesus would most likely come back in my lifetime. Anybody else ever hear that growing up? I'd say we've been taught that for 2,000 years. You know how easy it is to forget that Jesus might come back today? It's real easy. It's real easy to get caught up in the culture, to get caught up in the distraction, to get caught up in the moment, to get caught up in the desires, to get caught up in the obstacles. It's so easy to not look and to not wait and to not watch. But Paul reminds them to watch, to be alert at all times for the Lord's coming. When you are waiting and anticipating Jesus to come today, I'm telling you, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the conversations that you have. It'll change the way you think, and it will ultimately change the way you feel. It'll change what you hope for. You ever been, a, you ever been asleep and jump, kind of wake yourself up? Anybody ever done that? Has anybody, has anybody, have you ever been like really kind of sleepy a little bit and then kind of wake up, somebody might have woken you up and you said the words, whew, I must have dozed off. Because sometimes you can fall asleep and you didn't know you fell asleep. I think of uh, Peter, James, and John. Jesus takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, hey, I need you to pray here for an hour and I'll be back. And he comes back, what are they doing? And he, he kind of rebukes them and comes back and he's, 
they're asleep again. He rebukes them. He comes back. You know what Peter said? Oh, I must have dozed off. <laughs> I don't know what he said, but I know he wasn't happy and he got a really good rebuke. Jesus said, so that you may be able to endure, watch and pray, lest you be tempted. But they didn't watch and pray. And when the guards came, they hightailed it into the woods. And later on, when Peter is questioned about his relationship with Jesus, Peter denies him three times. But Jesus, the prayer, the watcher, the one who was fixed on eternity, when temptation came to him, he said, not my will, but yours be done. When they took the hammer and began to drive nails into his hands to die for your sin, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said, well, he's Jesus. Yeah, but he, but he prayed. And he was looking beyond the circumstance at the joy of the resurrection. The point is this, as we see different events that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, we should realize that the return of Jesus has never been nearer than it is right now. And we need to be watchful and we need to be sober-minded and we don't need to, to, to be dealing with all sorts of meaningless, vain, futile thoughts that hardens our hearts. Sober means to have a clear mind so that we can have the mind of Christ at every moment. Not allowing anything to obscure our thinking. To be able to have fixed thinking, watchful thinking. And it's not easy to be watchful. Watching requires concentration and endurance. When Paul's going through this, he says, Brothers, brothers, he, he talks about being light living with preparation and watchfulness. He talks about children of darkness. He talks about, you know, they live with themselves in mind and they're easily distracted. Listen, there is no such thing as a comatose Christian. But, but I want to bring all that together in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So this is, this is Paul's way of being sober-minded, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Remember in chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul says, we've heard about your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember then we talked about faith is built in the past and it is built from looking back and seeing how God has worked. It's, it comes from remembering. So when I look back and I see God's hand, it, it builds me with faith. It, it, I've got benchmarks. I've got, I've got issues that I've dealt with. I've got, and this faith requires difficulty. It, it requires hardship. It requires difficult circumstances. It requires struggles, brokenheartedness. It requires dark moments. Because if you can't see the grace of God and the mercy of God, of God giving you and, and holding back from you different things, if you cannot see those things in your life, then you have no, no means of gaining faith. So I want you to go back and use, I know there's good things too, but you know why they're good things? Because they overcame the bad things. I remember that time I got that promotion. Yeah, well, just before the promotion, you were wondering how you're going to eat. 
So this was a bad thing. And you see how God works. You see how God moves. You see how God establishes. So when you look back at the bad things in your life and you can see God's grace and you can see God's mercy, your faith begins to be established. And because you have faith, you're freed to love. That's why he puts faith and love together to guard your vitals, your heart. Faith isn't established on mountaintops. Faith is established in valleys. So when you look back, you see him. So that when you look back, you see him. When you look forward, guess what you can see? Him. And when you can see him forward, that's called hope. And that's what we need to wear to protect our thoughts, our minds, the way we process the will of God, our sanctification. The processing of becoming more like Jesus in the way we think. So when I look back and I can see how God works, then I can look forward and I can see hope, a living hope, a hope that God that knows that God is going to show up in the midst of my fire because he has always done that. And here's how I know he's always done it because it's all he knows to do. It's what he does every time. But listen, if you're dependent upon your circumstance and every circumstance is this crisis of faith, we need to, you need to look back. You need to learn how to look back and see what God is doing, has done, and will, so that you'll know what he will do. You need hope when difficulty and fears arise. In the absence of fear, you're free to love. That's why faith and love are tied together. So faith frees you to love. And hope frees you to love. And you never have to deal with your crisis. You never have to deal with your circumstance. You just love. That's why I think Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so, so these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, wait, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these are the one thing that you can do. Love. This is the proof that your faith is producing hope. So over your chest, protecting your vitality in your heart, you have faith and love as a, as a breastplate. And over your head, protecting your thoughts, protecting your actions is hope. But you can only have that hope when you're living in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and the anticipation of his return. And listen, Satan's going to lure you and he's going to try to shift your heart and he's going to try to get your heart to focus on the things of this world and to desire the things of this world. And this is going to affect the way your faith is built and you're going to end up living from circumstance to circumstance and your faith is never going to be built. And if your faith is never built, then your hope cannot be built. And then we begin to allow immorality and we begin to allow selfishness and we begin to allow entitlement into our life and to crowd in. And when you allow these three things to come into your life, it obscures God's grace and mercy. And this defeats faith and it always clouds hope. It paralyzes you from being able to walk in the power of the resurrection here and later. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. There's a lot of other things that Paul teaches here that we're just not going to have time to get in because we're, we're just talking about the living hope. So we'll just have to wait on that for another series. But let me, let me close today by this. I want, I'd like for you to bow your heads. And I'd really like for you not to be looking around right now. And I want to just ask you a couple of questions. 
Well, you think about a, a living hope, and there's never been a time where I feel like hope is less seen, even in the church, even among God's people, than right now. I know that it's true in my lifetime. So much animosity, so much opinionating, so much anger, so much frustration, so much division, so much fear, so much animosity, even among God's people, arguing, bickering, complaining. Everywhere you go, you see people trying to be right instead of being loving, hopeful, and selfless. It seems to me, as you go all the way through the Scripture, the one thing, the one fruit of the Spirit that does away with all of that is hope. Because you see, when, when hope becomes full, when hope becomes muscle memory, it becomes joy. And when joy becomes full, like muscle memory, like joy that can't be stolen, joy that can't be taken away, joy that's not based on, that, that joy that's deep down. When joy becomes full, it becomes peace. And peace is the craving of our spirits. It's the thing that God promises us. Faith looks back. Love looks today. Hope looks in the future. But hope can become joy. Joy becomes peace. Peace settles us. So my question is, when it comes to hope, do you have it? And I, and I, I mean, I'm not saying, do you, are you in a good mood today? I, I'm not saying, you know, you feel, do you feel like, you know, are you optimistic about your day? I'm saying, are you living in view of the second coming of Jesus Christ? Are you living in the resurrection power today? And as Paul says over and over, more and more, more and more, as you're doing this, more and more, keep, keep, keep growing in it, keep growing in it. Are you focused on Jesus or are you focused on circumstances? Are you focused on God's word or are you focused on news media? Are you, are you focused on exhibiting the love of Jesus in your relationships or are you focused on being right? hope? I mean, are you a hope dispenser? What I want you to do today, I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and I just want you to just to go to a special place where you can just think for a moment, and I want you to think back. And, and, and we don't have time to, to do this as much as I would like to, but I want you just to think back at all of the dark spots in your life. 
And rather than focusing on the dark spots, I want you to focus on the grace and the mercy of God evident in those moments. I want you to see that in every dark moment, God's grace and God's mercy was already there working, producing. And I want you to remember. I want you to remember how good God is to you. I want you to remember what God has saved you from, what God has saved you through. I want you to get a a real second moment. I want you to think about what if God's grace and mercy hadn't been there? Where would you be right this very moment without knowing his grace and mercy was there? It's still a pretty dark place. We need to learn to be grateful for every count it all joy. Brothers, when you go through various trials, because those trials produce patience. Patience produces maturity, and maturity well, produces holiness. And this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. But I want you to think right now of someone in your life that you need to comfort. Somebody in your life that you need to give hope to. Somebody you work with, somebody you live nearby, somebody that lives in your home. I want us, I want to, I want us to take what, what the Spirit is doing and has offered to us, and, and we have got to learn to give it away. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You've never made a public declaration of your darkest days and been able to see God's grace and mercy in the midst. And maybe today you'd be willing to say, I have produced a lot of darkness and now I can see the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and I want to experience his resurrection power. I want his resurrection to be my resurrection. And maybe week by week, you decide you're going to do something different. But it's not working. Each week, you end up in the same place, making a decision that it's not working. And I'm telling you, there's only one way to have that satisfied, and that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ and giving not, not just a decision to Him, but giving your life to Him. Giving Him every dark spot and walking in the power of His resurrection. But I want you to ask yourself this this morning. If not today, why? What, what could possibly be the reason that today wouldn't be the day to say yes to Jesus? If maybe there's some things in your life that's keeping you from making an all-out confession of faith. Maybe there's some distractions and a lot of unsettled business that you just don't know how to wrap your mind around. Listen, I want to encourage you. And so don't leave today. Don't leave today with anything but living hope. And here's how you know that it's living hope. You're able to give it away. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In your whole body, your spirit, your soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.
If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.